Father, thank you so much for this morning and this afternoon for us out here in the East. Lord, thank you for another opportunity to gather together to worship you, to praise you, to uh, hear your word. And I pray as we get to your word today that you would enable us to understand what you intended and that we would respond the way you desire so that uh, you would be greatly magnified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, and in the book of Nehemiah, it's very clear that uh, Nehemiah was led by the Lord to come to uh, Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls and the gates that were burned down with fire. Uh, The Jews were in great distress, and within that great distress, uh, there was also shame that uh, the city that represents the name of the Most High is in shambles. And uh, God is gracious through Nehemiah to bring about the rebuilding of the walls, even in light of all the opposition and difficulty that Satan through Sanballat, Tobiah, and the others uh, tried to bring about to stop the rebuilding of the walls. But God was gracious, and through uh, their trust in the Lord, who fought for them, who uh, took care of them, and who did... Uh, the work through them, they were able to complete it in 52 days. And it's at this point in the book of Nehemiah that it takes a turn in chapter 7 to address the people and where they are spiritually. Because really, if you look at their lives, their lives were torn down and in a shambles. Uh, they were not uh, following the Lord's word. They were not obeying him. They were not doing what he had said they should be doing as his people And indeed, in chapter 7, we saw it turns towards that focus of spiritual rebuilding of the people. And it's interesting, Nehemiah would share that the city, Jerusalem, was large and spacious, and there were, uh, but there were not many houses in there. And so he assembled the people for genealogies. The implication is, we want to populate the city. We want to have God's city have his people in it. But there's a detour there, and that detour goes up to chapter 11. And we'll see in chapter 11 that it eventually is populated. Uh, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people, chapter 11, verse 1, cast lots to bring one out of ten to Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And we're going to see, as we continue our look in uh, these chapters uh, 8 through 10, that these people do respond, and they are rebuilt, and then they are ready to obey the Lord and go back to where he wanted them to be. And so with that in mind, we're going to see and continue to see how God restores us spiritually. Indeed, we saw in chapter 8 that there needed to be a desire, a desire for the Word of God. And they desired it, and they desired God's people that were gifted to teach his Word, to teach them, and they called for Ezra. And we saw that they had the right heart. They were attentive. They were worshipful. They were reverent. And they listened uh, with the intent of understanding. And we saw that after Ezra read, the Levites explained the word, declaring it distinctly uh, in a stinging fashion to put wisdom in the hearts of those that they would understand. And we see that they did come to an understanding of the word of God, and they were convicted. They were convicted. They were mourning, and uh, the Levites told them, because the day was holy not to mourn, but the joy of the Lord is their strength. And then they came to understand as they studied the word more that they 
uh, were, it was the time of the Feast of Booths coming up on them. And they decided to obey the Lord. And they did obey the Lord for the first time as a nation since Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, certainly there were sporadic obedience in pockets up to that point, but not the whole nation, not all of those who dwelt there uh, going and, and obeying the Lord. And from that, we see they stayed in the Word of God. The Word of God was being read even during that time. And now we come to chapter 9. And we're going to look at the whole chapter today. Chapter 9 is an amazing chapter because we're going to see that it is a chapter of, of most, the, the, the bulk of the chapter is a prayer, a petition by the Levites with uh, those uh, Jews. It is an acknowledgement of Israel's sin and why they got to and where they were and how they got to where they were in light of God's faithfulness in light of God's uh, justice and right to do what he did, in light of his compassion to continually turn and help them as they cried out to him. And yet they kept turning their ears from listening to his word, and they didn't want his commands. And so we see that today, and we're going to go through that, and it's really a history of Israel uh, starting at the creation, then from Abraham, and then going through. But it's really focused on, again, what they had done wrong in light of God's compassion. And so even though it's a lot of verses, I think we're going to be able, we're going to, be able to move through it. We need to move through it. We could take those verses uh, 5 and on and look at each part and go back to the Old Testament, look at every part and correlate it together, but I don't think we need to do that. It explains in itself what uh, the, the point is. So with that in mind, I'm going to read the first few verses, and then we'll read the rest as we go through them. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now in the 24th day of, the, of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord, their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, uh, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shen, Shenani. And they cried, uh, cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, uh, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sher, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Path. Ahiah said, Arise and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before thee. Well, we'll start here. And again, I'm not going to read through the whole chapter. We're going to read that as we go along. But we'll start here. And we're going to see how the Lord, we're going to continue to see as we come to the climax, really, of this portion, how the Lord restores us spiritually. Indeed, chapter 9, we're going to see that it's through repentance and obedience that the Lord restores us unto himself and we'll see chapter 10, really, that repentance played out in their obedience and what they decide to do. And then in chapters 11 and on, we're going to see they begin to uh, celebrate and, and rejoice over the walls being uh, re redone. 
And we see uh, later on that there's still sin that needs to be weeded out. And God does that. So first of all, we're going to see that genuine repentance is going to manifest in a humble acknowledgement and separation and a confession of sin. Look at verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt on them. This was uh, was uh, uh, quite a scene, I bet. Quite a scene. Fasting, sackcloth, and dirt on them. Now it says on the 24th day of this month. Well, what month is he speaking of here? Well, you might remember back in chapter 6, six verse 15, the wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th of the 6th month. And then the events of chapter 8 begin just a few days later on the 1st of the 7th month, chapter 8, verse 2. And we see that that's when Ezra read the word of God and the Levites explained the law to the people, chapter 8, verse 7. And they were convicted and understood what had been made known to them. And they were mourning and weeping, but encouraged not to grieve, but to recognize the joy of the Lord is their strength. And then on the second day of the seventh month, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8, they found how the Israelites were to celebrate the Feast of Booths during the seventh month. And it's the seventh month. Well, if you look back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, you see the Feast of Booths is to be celebrated on the 15th of the seventh month to the 22nd for eight days. And so they did it. They did it. They celebrated it. And we see that during that time, they didn't cast the word behind them. You know, some people who are convicted uh, about sin, whatever it might be, they may make a change, but they just cast God and his word behind them and they move on. They think they've taken care of it, but they didn't. They wanted to be in the word of God. Look at verse um, verse 18 of chapter 8. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, uh, from the first day to the last. That's of the feast. That's from the 15th to the 22nd. And so that's the first principle. They're responding to the word of God. We're going to see that what happens next is really a response to the further conviction of the word of God. That, yes, they had realized they needed to celebrate the Feast of Booths, and they did it. But there was more underneath that. And that's what we're going to see with us. Sometimes God convicts us of something, but he wants to get to the root of it all. I mean, you think about it. When you're pulling weeds, if you just take the top off, you've got a weed coming up pretty soon. You've got to get to the root. And sometimes there's these other things next to it that need to be pulled out. And we need to come to the understanding of completely just acknowledging our sin, truly what we've truly done. And so here we're going to see that they were assembled uh, together. They were assembled as a nation. And they were, I believe, repentant, visibly repentant. You say, how can you know that? It says the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt on them. This is on the 24th day of the month. This is two days after they celebrated the feast of they assembled again. Now, thinking of repentance, I'm going to talk about this, although we don't see the words in this particular passage specifically, but I'm going to talk about repentance. We know from the New Testament the term repentance is metanoia. We know that term is metanoia. It is a term that uh, speaks of changing your mind. That's what repentance means. It means changing your mind. Now, let me give you a, 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 a simple example about how a change of mind will result, if you truly change your mind, how it will result in change of behavior. Think about this. This is a non-spiritual example, but let's say I plan to go to Target to pick up a case of energy drinks or whatever, okay? So I'm on my way there. 
and I get the word that there's a terrible storm and the road is washed out and I could crash and die upon the way. Well, I decide to change my mind because of the consequences of going that direction. And I say, I'm going to go to Walmart instead. So I've changed my mind and thus my actions have changed also. So a change of mind, if it's truly a change of mind, will result in a change of actions. If you truly believe what you're doing is wrong and you've been convicted, you're going to change. Now, we know as believers we fall back into things. We get caught up in things that we've done before. We're tempted in the same ways, and it continues on. But we should be confessing, as we'll see, in an ongoing manner. We should be repenting in an ongoing manner. And so we see here that they're repenting. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a word called shuv, basically, and it means to turn or to return. That's what's translated repent. It's speaking about turning. speaking about turning. You see, there's a turning there. So here... It says here that they were fasting in sackcloth with dirt upon them. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? What, what, is, what is this fasting in sackcloth? Should we be running out to the Christian bookstore and get some sackcloth and, you know, and some uh, dirt some, to put on our heads? Or what should we be doing? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that this was a visible sign in this culture and in other cultures of repentance of a shame and a mourning over sin. Take, for instance, we see this in the book of Jonah. You can turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We see in Jonah chapter 3 uh, very clearly, very clearly um, the repentance of the Ninevites. And I'm going to read this here. And they repented at the word of God being preached, and they believed in the Lord. See, one thing is not just accepting, okay, that's wrong. You've got to believe in the Lord. You've got to trust in him. You need to believe what he said and what he's, what he's saying. Uh, Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it that which I am going to tell you. Now we know Jonah took a, uh, a disciplinary ride on a, on a big fish. We know that he chose to go the other way because he hated the Ninevites. He knew God was compassionate. He knew from God's character that they would repent because of God's character of compassion. And Jonah went the other way. He went the other way. He wanted nothing to do with that. But God was uh, hot on his tail and brought about that whale ride or that big fish ride. And so now after that, after almost dying or possum, I'm thinking maybe died in that and we don't know, arise and grow to Nineveh, the great city, proclaim to it proclamation which I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. He cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what we see is that the Ninevites repented. Notice, look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh did what? Believed in God. They believed in all kinds of gods before. They were pagans. And here they believed in the God of Israel that Jonah was proclaiming, a preacher, he was proclaiming here, and that there was judgment coming in 40 days, and they understood why. They didn't say, well, what are we being judged for? They understood. Notice what we see here. And they called for a fast, sounds familiar, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Okay, so they understood it. Later on, they're going to say, and the, and the king there, the, the leader, he's going to acknowledge, hey, it's our sinful ways, it's our bloody hands. He's going to say, it's, we know what it is. 
And he called for it also. And so here we have in our passage, we have uh, the idea of fasting sackcloth with dirt upon them. So but what is the significance of this? What is the significance of this? Uh, like we see in Jonah in our passage. Well, in both situations and in other passages I'll mention, they are signs of sorrowful, humble repentance. Indeed, fasting is seen in Scripture as a self-denial to represent a sorrowful humility before God because of sin. And we see that to be an evidence of repentance. Uh, In Joel chapter 2, concerning the day of the Lord, the Lord will speak to them about his judgment coming, but he'll tell them what to do, and it's talking about their heart attitudes. Joel chapter 2, verse 11, I'll read this for you. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Turn to me. That's repentance. With all your heart. Not a half-heartedness, but a full heart. It means you're not holding on to things. It's not, we're saying I'm sorry for this, but holding on to that. It's a full turning. And it says, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And he says, and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting in evil. The idea is if my heart is right, I'm going to be kind of broken up over my sin. I'm going to be broken up over it. And there's going to be that idea here, which we see of fasting. Um, But what about this idea of putting on sackcloth? Well, sackcloth was cloth made of black goat's hair, and it was a coarse, rough, and thick, and it was obviously used in making sacks. And in Scripture, we see it uh, used in two different ways. First of all, we see it used of those who were mourning for like a deceased loved one that would put on sackcloth, a visible sign of distress. We see that. But throughout Scripture, we also see that sackcloth being put on to represent a mourning over sin a mourning over one's sinfulness. For example, when David uh, and the elders uh, covered themselves with sackcloth, they acknowledged David's sin and the consequences when he had listened to Satan and numbered his armies. First Chronicles 21.16, I'll read this for you. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces, and David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. It was a visible sign of being contrite over your sin. Uh, we see this with, uh, with Ahab when he was convicted by Elijah, the word of, through Elijah. Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 27 And I came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went around despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, uh, Elijah the Tishbite saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. I will bring about evil on his house in his son's days. He was convicted. And he responded to it. He responded to it. Even though he was a bad guy in this situation, he responded and God relented, relented because of his response. We know that Daniel, uh, when he realizes uh, it's been 70 years that Israel's been disciplined and he's praying and confessing sin, he's in sackcloth, Daniel 9.3. So I gave my attention to seek the Lord, seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. 
And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, O Lord God, great and awesome God, who keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. The Lord Jesus, he talks about uh, those cities that wouldn't repent. He talks about them, and he says in Matthew chapter 11, Woe to you, Chorazon, verse 21. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles occurred in Tyre and Sidon occurred in you, you would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, it's not the fact that you put on sackcloth that makes you repentant. It's because you are repentant they are doing that. That's why. It's not doing some type of thing. I'm going to fast and I'm going to put sackcloth on to make it up to God, whatever it might be. It's not that. It's because you truly see that you've sinned against God. And there is a an outward sign of that with sackcloth and ashes. This is an eternal action based on an inward change. And we see the unsaved Ninevites, they repented. And we're going to see the saved Jews of our passage, that they are repentant, that they are repentant. And so, coming back to our passage, they put sackcloth and throwing dirt on themselves. It was a sign of mourning over sin. And we're going to see, they're going to be confessing their sins. It's not just an action. They're actually confessing their sins. They were repentant. You see, God's word was still at work in them. It was still at work in them. It didn't stop when they obeyed him with the Feast of Booths. God was continuing to root out those weeds of sin. He was yanking them out. He was exposing it with his word. Exposing it with his word. And so here we see uh, them humbly mourning over sin. You know, when God convicts us through the word of God, we're going to have a conviction that leads to repentance. Now, there's a worldly sorrow. We've got to be careful. Sometimes we're sorrow, sorry because what we did maybe caused our life to go bad or it caused someone else to have a hardship or whatever it might be. That's not a godly sorrow. Second uh, Corinthians 7, I now rejoice, verse 9, Paul says, that you were made sorrowful, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Paul wrote them with the word and according to the God's word and his will in his word, they were made sorrowful. It says here, or that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. That's kind of an interesting statement. You know, when you repent, you're acknowledging your sin, you're broken over it, but you're not regretting repenting. <laughs> you're actually thankful that you're turning. You're thankful that you're, you're going that direction, right? We see that. And then an apprentice without regret, leading to salvation. But sorrow of the world produces death. Death is separation. You know, when anyone says they're sorry for stuff and then there's, they don't confess everything, then you see that death. You see that in the attitudes, actions. We see that in our own lives. We know that. We see that in others' lives. And God wants to get to the root of it and root it out. So then back in our passage, they did this. They, 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 the 24th day, two days after, uh, they'd been hearing the word. And then look at verse 2. Notice they recognized their sin, and the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They were taking an action to separate from sin. They were sinful. They had, as we will see, they had mingled with the Canaanites, and we'll see that later on. 
and they had been convicted over it. But even before that, did you notice something interesting? Verse 1 says, the sons of Israel. Verse 2 says, the descendants of Israel. And you want to ask the question, why the change in wording here? Why does it now say the seed of Israel? Well, we know Israel is the nation that came from Abraham and then Isaac. Isaac was, Isaac and then Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel, right? Jacob, the deceiver, was renamed Israel. And the nation is named after that. And we see that the seed of Israel, in a sense, I believe is pointing to, hey, these guys are probably believers. They're not just the physical sons. They are actually the seed, in a sense. It's certainly possible certainly possible that the wording here is is giving us a clue that these guys are believing in the Lord. They're going to see later on, over and over, the Lord their God, the Lord their God, the Lord their God. We're going to see that. And so then, uh, we have this inspired by the Spirit uh, truth concerning them. And notice they separated themselves from all foreigners. I believe they were convicted of their sin of intermingling and intermarrying with the Canaanites in the land. Uh, they had come back from, from Persia. They had come back uh, from the Persian Empire. They had been set free to go serve the Lord there. And guess what? They started mingling with the, with, the, with the bad guys, you know, the ones that had been left there because Israel didn't obey in the first place. They started mingling. And they gave their daughters and sons. Look in chapter 10, because this is, this is, chapter 10 is the statement in a sense of who does it, but also the statement of what they're going to do. Because at the end of our chapter, it's going to say, therefore we make this agreement. And we're going to sign it in writing, you know? And so chapter 10 is that who does it and the agreement. And the agreement talks about their sin and what they're going to do about it. Look at verse, um, verse t- 28 of chapter 10. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, uh, lands to the law, to the law of God, uh, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who had acknowledged had knowledge and understanding. They'd separate themselves from the peoples to the word, basically, right? And it says, are joining with their kinsmen and nobles and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe the commandments of God our Lord and of his, his ordinances and statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They certainly were convicted of that. Later on, we're going to see they were convicted of certain areas of the law that they had ignored that they had ignored. And so here we have this here. And so I believe they're really repentant. And when you're really repentant, there's a change in behavior. There's a change in behavior. And so they separated themselves. Here we see it back in our passage. They separated themselves from all foreigners. They, they, they split up. And notice it says, secondly, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is interesting. Now, is this passage, as we'll see later on, which talks about the iniquities of the fathers, are we to, you know, when we are repentant, go and think down through our family history and our nation and everything and go through and repent for every sin we see that was associated with us from, from, from our great-great-grandpa to us? You know, are we to do that? Are we to go through that? Well, here, this is a unique situation. 
These are God's people. God had made a covenant with them as a nation, but they were also individually his people, you see. And as a nation, they needed to see why they were in the situation they were in. They needed to see what brought them there. And they needed to acknowledge the sins of their fathers, which was bearing upon them the consequences right at that time, you see. But they also confessed their sins. And so we need to be careful not to look at the rest of what we'll see and think it's only talking about the father's sins and how, it, how he got here. They confessed their sins here. We see that right here, it says. And they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So here they acknowledge the sins, their sins and the sins of their father. You see, when you're repentant, you're going to be confessing, confessing. You know, in 1 John 1, 9, we're very familiar with that verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that verse, you know, bothered me, not in a bad way, but in an intriguing way for a while. Is it that we're not forgiven till we confess later on? Uh, wait a second. I know from Scripture we've been forgiven. I know our sins have been forgiven from the east to the west. So how does that work? Well, it seems like, and you could turn to 1 John, it seems like the way this is being spoken of, John is exposing in this letter those who have a said faith but aren't saved. And the main evidence is their love for one another. That's really what we'll see. But in that, it's also how they respond to the word, which also has to do with love. And it also has to do with where they feel and recognize concerning their sin. Where do they stand concerning their sin? Look at 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are all sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there can be moments where we are sinless for the moment, but that's not going to be long. It's only in glory that we're going to be sinless forever, right? But we should be, like Paul, sinning less, right? And even God starts to expose areas that we didn't even see, and he starts to expose more areas as he starts to work and work on us. He says, and then we saw, if we confess our sins, and the tense here is if, if we continually, habitually confess our sins. If we are those who confess sins on a habitual level, ongoing, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, certainly, sin breaks our fellowship with God. Uh, he is grieved over our sin, right? We grieve the Holy Spirit, and confession restores that. But it appears as though... We, because we have a changed heart and are confessing sin, we're the ones that are forgiven. He's faithful and just to be the forgiver of our sins. We see that. And he goes on here. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. First John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. But if And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Satan comes along accusing uh, through people, through, he accuses also uh, uh, the Lord in heaven, the accuser of the brethren, he accuses concerning us, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is himself as the propitiation for our sins. He is the complete satisfaction through his mercy for our sins. God is satisfied with his his death and, and, and for our sins and his burial and resurrection. And it says here, uh, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So they're confessing their sins. They're confessing their sins. Um, they're confessing them. And here we see in this context, I believe we're going to see there's no excuses. 
There's no excuses. When we see what the Levites share in their prayer, and they talk about the sins of their fathers when they include themselves in the end, by the way, we're going to see there's no excuses. There's no excuses. You know, uh, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know that, or God made me that way, or whatever it is. You know, you don't know about the situation of with my husband or my wife, or you don't know what my boss is like. Uh, you don't. There's no excuses. There's the admission. There's a confession. In the New Testament, the word means homologia, to say the same. If God says worry is sin, and He doesn't add to that unless this and this and this then where he is sin, and to confess it, I'm just going to confess it. I am sinning. I'm sorry, Lord, help me. If he says that we should not fear, and I'm fearing, I need to say, Lord, I've been fearing. I'm sorry. Under no excuses. Just acknowledge it to him. If he, What he says is, is there with no excuses. That's confession. You know, when we are not living the way we should in relationships, and we tell the Lord we're sorry, and we confess it, we're acknowledging according to what his standards are that we're not meeting those standards. We're confessing that, and there's no excuses. You see, excuses is not a confession at all, and parents know that. When you have children, you can see their little uh, conniving hearts at times, their sinful natures, where they're trying to say they're sorry for something, but they're really not. They're just sorry that they got caught, and they're sorry that something happened, and you have to get to the root of it so that their hearts change, and then they really acknowledge it, and then there's a joy afterwards, even though there's difficulty and hardship in that confession. There's a joy. So here... We see that they were confessing their sins, but they were also forsaking them. Uh, I like this verse a lot, Proverbs 28:13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses, and that's to the Lord, and forsakes them will find compassion. I need compassion. When I blow it with an attitude, when I blow it, you know, and I, I see it, an action or whatever it is, I need compassion. I need compassion. The way to have that compassion is to confess it and turn from those actions, right? We see that God is gracious. We're going to see he is a gracious, compassionate God. And he was so compassionate, so gracious over and over with Israel in spite of them. And a real theme we're going to see running through this is they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They refused to listen. They hardened their hearts. They stiffened their necks. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. You know, God's word says something. We just push it aside. We are being like them. We should not be like them. So then... We need to confess our sins. We need to forsake our sins. And here, notice this. But then guess what happens also? Look at verse 3 back in Nehemiah chapter um, 9. You're going, we're on verse 3, and it's this time. we got 38 verses to do. Okay, well, we'll hope you packed a sack lunch. Well, hopefully we'll get there. Um, it says, while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worship the Lord their God. He's their God. He is their God. He is the Lord, the, the great I am, their God. And so for a fourth of the day, they, they, they uh, read from the word. Another fourth, they confessed and worshiped. Now, there's a question to the fourth of the day. Is they speaking of a day of daylight? Then that would be three hours and three hours. Or is it the day with the night? Then it would be six hours and six hours. Well, we don't know. They just did it for a fourth of the day, right? And so we see that it was the word of God and then confession and worship. The word of God and then confession and worship. The word of God is the key to everything we're seeing here with a right heart receiving it. You can hear the word of God all day long and have the wrong heart, and we're going to see that with Israel and the fathers in the past. 
They had the word of God. They had God's spirit through the prophets admonishing them, and they did not listen. They did not listen. So then we see here the Lord their God, the Lord their God. And so God's word works in our hearts. It convicts, but it also corrects, and it brings us to worship the Lord. We saw that last week. Uh, oh, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not his benefits, uh, who, who pardons your iniquities, who redeems your life from the pit. We, we, we run that through our hearts and minds, and we worship the Lord because we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven of such great evil. And so when you're forgiven, you're going to want to worship the Lord. You know, if you're not forgiven, you're still got that sin there and you're in a broody, really bad attitude, whatever it might be, you're not going to want to worship the Lord. But once you see he's forgiven you and you recognize he's so gracious to us, he's so kind. And by the way, a little warning here, this message is not for us to go, hmm, I wonder if she's repenting. I wonder if he's repenting. I wonder if he's got to the root of his sin. I wonder if she's got to the root of her sin. This is for us to bring to ourselves. This is for us to bring to ourselves. And that's the way the word of God should be. We should allow it to convict us. Let God do the work on others, right? We're going to see that. Now, there are times when we have to come to people in the context of love. We see that. But by and large here, we need to let God's word work on us. So here, notice what happens here. After they're confessing and, 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 uh, and, and, and separating and worshiping, the Levites now lead them in a prayer. Lead them in a prayer, which is a prayer of praise, a prayer of con- petition or contrition, and then a petition. And it's for everyone. And this is what goes on from here to the end of the chapter. And I mentioned it, and I'll show you later on, that in 32 and in 38, we have um, some summaries that help us understand this. And we'll get to that in a minute. But here, notice in verse 4, now the Levites... St- now, on the Levites' platform stood Yeshua, this is verse 4, Bani, Kamiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God, the Lord their God. This is a prayer. This is a prayer from those on the platform, and it is including everyone, as we're going to see. When I'm praying here, or when someone comes up and prays, we're praying together, but someone is leading in that prayer. And the Levites are leading in this prayer, but it is the whole group. They're all assembled here. They're all assembled here. And they cry with a loud voice to the voice of their God. And then notice, we see uh, that prayer beginning. Then the Levites, Joshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hash. Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebanani, and Pethaniah said, Arise, this is to the congregation, everyone there, and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Speak well of him forever and ever. Rise up and speak well of God. Rise up and speak well of him forever and ever. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. May your name be even above all the blessing and praise. And so you see this worship of the Lord as, they, as he begins this portion, this worship. And then the Levites lead the congregation in confession based on God's compassion and faithfulness in light of Israel's continual sin. And that's what we're going to see here. Notice that in the, the structure here, there's going to be an acknowledgement. Here's what Israel did. Here's what they did. Here's what you did, God. Here's what they did. Here's what you did. Here's what we did. And notice verse 
32. Notice verse 32. Notice the phrase, now therefore our God. After all this, now therefore our God, and we want to do something. We're going to want to say something. You see, it, it points to something. It is a, it's a, it, there's going to be a petition at the end. Then look at verse 28, or verse 38. Now, because of all this, they're still praying. Now, Lord, because of all this, uh, uh, we are making an agreement in writing. This is why we're going to put it in writing, because of all the sin, as we're going to see, and your light of your great compassion. So then, notice how they begin this petition after the praise. Verse 6, thou art, thou alone art the Lord, thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them and heavenly, all the heaven, and the heavenly hosts bow down before thee. You alone are the Lord. You alone created all things. You give everything life and everything bows down to you. You're over everything. This is how they start. This is how they start. And then notice at this point, he begins to get into Israel's history, starting with Abraham, but God's faithfulness. Thou art the Lord God, verse 7, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You should look in uh, Genesis 11 and 12. Uh, Abraham means exalted father. But they're saying you gave him the name Abraham. Well, Abraham means father of a multitude. That relates to the promise that God made, as we'll see in a moment, that he would be the father of a multitude. It's saying you chose Abram. And, and you, you brought him out, and you gave him the name Abraham. And then notice, and thou didst find his heart faithful before thee. That's encouraging. Look at Abraham's life. Was he perfect? No, he had some mess-ups. He had some problems. This is my sister, right? You remember those things? He had some problems. But God worked through those, and Abraham was disciplined, and he was, he was sanctified, he was built up, and he grew in the faith. He believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was found faithful. He uh, offered up his son, right? And God was gracious. God is gracious. Abraham oh, was very, very gracious, right? And God is gracious to him. And so we see here, uh, you did find him faithful before thee, and thou didst make a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the per- Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. There's a lot of shites there, right? This is all those who were in the land. These were all the Canaanites. And you made a, a deal. You made a covenant with him to give it to his descendants. And thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. Here we start. You made a covenant with him, and you did it. You fulfilled your promise. You were faithful to your promises because you're righteous. God is faithful to his promises because he is righteous. He is just. He is faithful. You fulfilled your promise. And then notice, uh, thou didst see the affliction, verse uh, 9, of our fathers in Egypt, and thou didst hear their cry by the Red Sea. Then thou didst perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and against the servants of all and all the people of the land, of his land. 
For thou dost know that they acted arrogantly towards them, that would be the Jews, and thou dost make a name for thyself as it is this day. Don't forget, they're praying and they're talking to the Lord, by the way, when I'm reading this. They're saying, you did this, Lord, you did this, Lord. And it says here, and thou didst divide the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers thou didst hurl into the depths of the sea like a stone into raging waters. Now, we're not going to go into Exodus and read through the whole Exodus. You can read that, and you can see the, 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 the original account, but it's being summarized here in the context of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. And then notice verse 12, how God was gracious to lead them and give them his word. And with a pillar of cloud, thou didst lead them by day, and a pillar by fire by night, to light the way for them in the way which they were to go. You can see that in Exodus 13, 21 and 22. And then look at verse 13. Then thou didst come down from Mount Sinai, and didst speak with them from heaven. Thou didst give them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. God gave them his good word. He gave them his good commandments. He gave them... And so that thou dost know, make known the holy Sabbath, that thou dost lay down for them commandments, statutes, and law through thy servant Moses. Brought forth the, the, the law, that law which points and reveals that we're sinful, but reveals in shadow the sacrifices which would come forth and point to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who would atone for our sins, who would die for our sins and atone through the cross. So here, God, you did this. You brought them out of Egypt. You did this. You provided for them. You gave them your word. What more could they need? They were being led. And, and guess what? They could have gone into the land. They could have obeyed the Lord and gone into the land. But notice what happens. Verse 16, but our fathers acted arrogantly. What's arrogance? Arrogance is a form of pride, thinking you know better thinking that you know better, you know better that, that this is a better plan than what God says. Uh, we do that when we disobey God's word. We think we know better. We think we know better. They acted arrogantly, and they became stubborn, and what? Would not listen to thy commandments. We have God's word that we are to uh, live in a certain way towards one another, and we can reject that. We have God's word on how we're to serve the Lord, and we can set it aside, and we cannot listen. We have God's word, how we are to be in the world, and we can set it aside and not listen. And they did it. They set aside God's word. They acted arrogant. And they, this is a key. They would not listen. That's going to be throughout this. It's not that they didn't hear it. It's that they wouldn't listen. You know, when you're talking to a child, you're saying, uh, listen to me. You want them to actually hear and do what you're saying, right? You want them to, 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 to listen to it, right? They became stubborn and wouldn't listen. It's not a good thing. And we can be that way too, and we are that way at times. Not continually habitually like the Israelites for 40 years, but we can be that way. We need to learn from this. God says, uh, like I've shared before, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to, to God, right? But I worry and I set it aside. I'm not listening. I'm going to worry about something. I'm going to worry about this situation rather than trusting the Lord. God says, do not lean on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. But I lean on my understanding. I, I put aside and listen. But it can become hardened and stubborn. We don't want to be that way, yet we do it in little bits here and there. We do, but God wants to root those areas out. But here they were continually, habitually, as we will see, unwilling to listen. And they died out in the wilderness, as we'll see, because they didn't have faith, Hebrews chapter 4. They refused to listen. Look at uh, verse 17. They refused to listen. They did not remember thy wondrous deeds which thou hast performed among them. Wow. 
the Red Sea, Pharaoh and all that stuff chasing and his, and his whole army getting swallowed up. They didn't remember all the deeds in Egypt against the, the nation and Pharaoh and all that. They didn't remember. Now, that parallels the fact that we don't remember God's wondrous deeds towards us. We've been saved from our sins. We are such wretches and we forget what God has done for us. They didn't remember. And, and so then he says, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Wow. Turn to Numbers 14. I just want to take a little brief. I said I wasn't going to go through all the Old Testament passages, but I want to look at this one for a second because it helps us understand the root of not listening to God's word. It helps us understand the root of stubbornness. Numbers 14. And this is hard to, hard to, you know, when you, when you are in a position, you know, and you, you've, you, you have, uh, you're, where you're leading people in the Lord, it's hard to, to read these things and it's hard to see what Moses went through. It's hard to see it. Numbers 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night and the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we have died. Remember those, those, you know, they have those kids' cartoons, the Bible cartoons, and they, they emphasize the, the whininess of the people doing it. Well, you know, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, will become plunder. Would it not be better to return to Egypt? They're sinking horizontally completely. This, and they're not believing in the Lord, as we'll say. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. That's what we're talking about in our passage. But look down a little farther, Numbers 14:11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not, what, believe in me? Okay, that's the core. Um, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. At the core of not listening to God's word is a lack of faith in the Lord. We don't believe he can take care of the difficulties in front of us, so we don't listen to the word to say stop worrying. We don't believe that he's going to turn it for good, so we fret and worry. Whatever it might be, we don't believe the word. We're not believing in him in this moment. God wants to help us so that we will, and we will not be like this. These things have been written for us on whom the end of the ages have come, that we would not crave evil things. And so here... Notice there's a contrast in light of their wickedness. Verse 17, back in Nehemiah 9. But thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and thou didst not forsake them. Hey, that's where our heart needs to be when we're confessing. Yeah, we messed up, but you're gracious, you're kind, you're merciful, you're, 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 you're forgiving. We see that you didn't forsake him. He didn't forsake his people, even in the midst of that. And the tremendous character of God in, in, in spite of their sin. Forgiveness, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. What a tremendous God we have in spite of their sin and our sin. Right? Tremendous God. You didn't forsake them. He'll never leave us to forsake us either, by the way. Um, so they're praying. They're praying to the Lord concerning his wonderful character and faithfulness. And notice, in spite of uh, God's faithfulness and gracious character, Israel's wickedness increased. Look at verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal. You can read about that. Um, and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Wow, we have a patient God. God brought them out through signs and wonders, and they make a calf out of metal, and they say, this is the God that did it. Wow. 
God's patient. He's very patient. And committed great blasphemies. Thou in thy great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to lead them on the way which they were to go. He didn't abandon them, by the way. Even in spite of that, God did not forsake them in the wilderness, in spite of the golden calf and the blasphemy of that. And notice, he even gave what he gave to them in the wilderness. Verse uh, 20. And thou didst give thy good spirit to instruct them. We could, if you want to have a, an understanding of the spirit of God in the Old Testament, you could start some of these verses here. He gave thy good spirit to instruct them. That's the spiritual side. Thy manna thou didst not withhold from their mouth. He fed them, and thou didst give them water in their thirst, right? He, he gave them what they needed physically and spiritually, what they needed. Indeed, for 40 years thou didst provide for them in the wilderness. They were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Wow, he took care of their physical needs and their spiritual needs, although they rejected him. Although they rejected him. What does he mean by giving the Spirit? Did he give them the Spirit in some general sense? Well, look down at verse 30. Look down at verse 30 because this helps us understand what he's talking about. He's going to talk about this in the context of being in the land, but I think it's the same thing as we'll say. 9 verse 30. However, thou dost bear with them for many years and admonish them by thy Spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. God gave his word through his prophets. He gave his word through them. He gave his spirit to them, and he gave the word for them. He gave them what they needed spiritually. And then look at it. It begins to talk about how he gave them, the, how he fulfilled the promises to Abraham. Back in chapter 9, verse 22. Thou didst also give them kingdoms and peoples, and thou did allot them to them a boundary and they took possession of the land of Sion and the king of Heshbon and the land of Og and the king of Bashan. This speaks of the Amorites who, who didn't, weren't kind to Israelites and then the Israelites took, God gave them over to them, right? They took them over, the Ammonites took, the Israelites took over the Ammonites and then Bashan, which God gave to the Jews. We see this in Numbers 21, 21 through 35. Those were those outlying areas, right? You know, and then we see that he also fulfilled his promise by multiplying them and bringing them into the land. And that's what this next section is about. Verse 23, and thou didst make their sons numerous as the stars of heaven. You know, when you recount what God has done, recount it accurately. They're recounting it accurately. God fulfilled his promise. He made them as the stars of heaven. Remember he told Abraham, go out, look at the stars, Right. You know, and basically promised him that his seed would be that 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 much. And then Siri says, Thou dost bring them into the land which thou hast told their fathers to enter and possess. So the sons entered and possessed the land. That next generation, because the other generation died out, right? In the wilderness because of their sin. And thou did subdue before the inhabitants of the land of the, Can- the Canaanites. Thou did give them into their hand. Thou didst give them into their hand with their kings, with their and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. And they captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of the houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance, so that they ate, were filled, and grew fat. And they reveled in thy great goodness. They were in the land, and they were benefiting by God's great goodness. He had brought them in faithfully. 
But notice, but they became disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and killed thy prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to thee and they committed great blasphemies. It's always about you've walked away from the Lord or you're not following the Lord or you don't know the Lord, return to him, right? And they admonished and they killed the prophets and they rebelled and they rebelled while they were in the land, in the land. But notice verse 27, what did God do? Therefore thou didst deliver them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to thee in the time of distress, you see this really vividly in, uh, in uh, Judges, but you see it all throughout their history. Thou didst hear from heaven, and according to thy great compassion, thou didst give them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. God was gracious over and over. When they reject the Lord, consequences come. They cry out, ha, ah, and he delivered them, right? But notice, this is really sad. This is a summary of their history and their ongoing sinfulness in light of his faithfulness. Verse, um, verse uh, 28, but as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore thou didst abandon them to a land in the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried out to thee, thou didst hear from heaven, and many times thou didst rescue them according to thy compassion. Over and over again, they did evil. They cried out. God rescued them because he's compassionate. And they're recounting God's faithfulness in light of Israel's sin, their father's sin. And it's important. They're not just giving a list of what the fathers have done. The counselors say, you need to go back in your past and the past generations and figure out what the sins of your families are and then confess them. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're seeing how that affected them now in terms of Israel as a nation in which they were part of Israel as a nation. And so we see here... Uh, that during that time he was compassionate, but he admonished them, verse 29, and admonished them in order to turn them back to thy law. He admonished them, yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to thy commandments, but sinned against thine ordinances, by which a man observes he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. I have in my notes, don't do that. Don't do that. They turned a stubborn heart and neck, stiffened neck, and they would not listen. And yet God was patient year after year to admonish them with his prophets. Look at, we see that, verse 30, However, thou didst bear with them many years and admonish them by thy spirit through the prophets, yet they did, would not give ear. Therefore thou didst give them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. He's going to say now, this is their exile. This is the reality that God gave them into the peoples, the northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon, to be exiled, to be captives. We see that. Nevertheless, verse 31, in thy great compassion, thou did not make an end of them or forsake them, for thou art a gracious and compassionate God. And by the way, if you have a theology that says Israel's out, you better read the Old Testament. You know, because God is very compassionate. He is faithful to his promises. He will, he will do what he says. And we see that exemplified in their Old Testament history. The Lord God bore with Israel many years, admonished them through his spirit by the prophets, yet they wouldn't listen and they were given over to exile. Yet in God's compassion and grace, he did not destroy them or forsake them. So we've seen the Levites praying with everyone who had been confessing their sins and the sins of their fathers. 
Now, why would they do that when they weren't the generations that sinned? Well, we need to recognize something very important. First of all, we need to recognize and recount God's faithfulness and his graciousness and his character. We need to see that and recount that and understand that. And secondly, we need to give a full accounting to God of what's happened. And for Israel, this is part of that full accounting. This is why they were being oppressed by the Persians, as we'll see in a moment. This is why, because of their nation's sin all the way up to this point. And they, as we'll see, have entered into that sin by yoking with uh, with uh, the, the foreigners and by also um, uh, not obeying God's word, as we'll see. So then... In light of all this, we need to give a full accounting. We need to, we need to confess. We need to give a full accounting. And then notice. And now, we've got to be careful. When we give a full accounting, it could be a pity party sorry session, right? Lord, I'm so, I'm so bad. Uh, la, 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 la. And that's all about me and what I did. And all of a sudden, it's just a speech about me. This is not a speech only about Israel. This is a speech, a truth about what God and his faithfulness was demonstrated in spite of their sin. But notice, now here we come to the petition here, beginning, verse 32. Now, therefore, our great, our, our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who does keep covenant and loving kindness, you're, that's who you are. You're faithful to your word. And by the way, they still had promises to be in the land and to be blessed in that land if they trusted him, if they obeyed him. They were promised to be blessed in the covenant, in the old covenant. Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before thee. The word insignificant means small. Don't let all the hardship that we're experiencing under the hand, as we'll see in a moment, of the Persians, they're slaves. They're enslaved. Uh, Do not let that seem insignificant. All the hardship. And notice here, uh, they're acknowledging their current sin also. However, verse 33, thou art just in all that has come upon us, for thou hast dealt faithfully. Behold, we have acted wickedly. We did too. You're just. And everything that happened to them and everything that happened to us, it is just. It is just. It is just. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept thy, thy law or paid attention to thy commandments and thine ordinances, which thou hast admonished them. But they in their own, but they in their own kingdom with thy great goodness, which thou hast given them, with the broad and, and rich land that is set before them, did not serve thee or turn from their evil deeds. The reality that when they were in God's good land, they didn't serve the Lord and didn't turn from their evil deeds. So then, he says, Behold, we are slaves, they say to the Lord, as slaves today. And as to this land which thou didst give our fathers to eat of its fruit and bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Here's, here's what's going on, Lord. We are suffering. And it's because of our father's sin. We know that. It's because of our sin. We know that. We know it. We're confessing it. And it's in, he says, In his abundant produce is for the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. That's just acknowledging. Acknowledge your sin fully. Don't give excuses. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. You know, it's okay to come to the Lord in repentance and ask for relief. To ask for relief from the consequences. When you're truly, truly 
wanting to follow him and obey him, when you're truly admitting your sin, truly admitting it. And then notice verse 38. Now because of all this, all this, what is all this? It's everything I just read. Because of all the sins of their fathers that brought them to the place where they are in their own sin, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, when we go to chapter 10, we're going to see what that is. We're going to see who signed it. We're going to see that it's about, it's a commitment to obey the Lord from the right heart. From the right heart. It's not saying we're going to do this, so this happened. They're, they're, they're going to do it because of their sin and how wickedly they were. Now, therefore, because of the consequences, your just consequences, you're not forsaking us still, we're going to obey you. We're going to obey you. So then, what can we learn from this? Well, the Lord wants a full accounting. Full accounting. Get to the root. Get the weeds out. Get it all the way out. And there'll be more later, but get out what's there now. That's what, when you're truly repentant, you're going to give a full accounting. You're going to acknowledge you deserve the consequences. There's going to be acknowledgement of God's graciousness, compassion, justice, and his faithfulness. And there's going to be fruit. There's going to be fruit. And that fruit will be initially a desire to obey his word a desire to be obedient. Lord, I haven't obeyed you in terms of these relationships. I haven't obeyed you in my attitude. I haven't done this. I'm experiencing the consequences from it, Lord. Forgive me, and my desire is to obey you now. My desire is to do your will. Help me do so. Help me do so. I haven't obeyed you at work. I haven't trusted you in school. Lord, help me do so now. Lord, I planned everything on my own. I did it on my own understanding. I sinned, Lord God, and here I am. Uh, Lord, forgive me, and I want to obey you now. I want to trust you. There needs to be a changed heart, a changed heart. So then, how does God build up and rebuild the spiritual walls and broken doors in the lives of his people, those whom the Lord is their God? Well, first of all, we see that genuine repentance will manifest in a humble uh, acknowledgement of sin and separation from it. We're going to be broken up. We're going to acknowledge it. Secondly, we're going to desire to hear his word and worship him more. And lastly, we're going to have a sense of coming before him in praise and contrition and petition and a desire to obey. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of these believers uh, in a line of so many unfaithful, and yet you were so faithful to your na- to the nation Israel, Lord God, over and over again, your compassion and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we can look in our lives, and although we aren't unbelievers like the nation of Israel was by and large, you've been faithful to us. We have sinned against you in many different ways, Lord God, and yet you have forgiven us. And you're compassionate, you're gracious, you're kind, you're merciful. Lord, help us to give a full accounting, to be bare before you, uh, to not hold on to anything that would be wicked in your sight. Cleanse us, Lord God, that we would be repentant. We would be truly desiring to turn and, and go the right way, Lord, that we would trust you and know you've forgiven us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we've seen today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And John, if we could sing, cleanse me, that would be great.